Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words in our hearts together glorify you, O God, our Redeemer and Sustainer. Amen. Y'all know that, um, gosh, has it been a couple of years now, uh, we fostered two little boys. And uh, it was it was a great and yet highly challenging experience, I have to tell you. But um, for Stephanie's birthday that year, uh, we went to Galveston, and we were able to take the boys with us. And some of you have heard us tell about that because uh, they had never seen the ocean. And I know that we were on the Gulf of Mexico, but it's an ocean, you know. <laughs> And, uh, and so we got down there and got unpacked and moved into our rooms and, and all of that. And then they just could not stand it. They wanted to get down to that water and see the ocean and everything else. And so we took them down there. And Stephanie has a wonderful picture of them that when they get down there, they just leap up. I mean, they're up in the air. And, you know, for having not ever seen that, and for their reaction to be so powerful. Uh, and so I want to ask you today to think about the times in your life where you've had a powerful reaction to something. You know, it, oftentimes it's something that happens in nature, or it might be a powerful reaction to someone who expresses or shows their love for you, uh, you know, or does something an action that helps you recognize in yourself that you're a person of worth, that you're respected, or something along that line. Um, I want you to think about that. I want you to hold it in your mind, because oftentimes, when we encounter things like that, we find ourselves going, what's going on? What is going on here? And, and oftentimes, if we're awakened enough, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, then, then, then we know that something mystical is taking place. And we may not say that out loud, but something is happening. And we, the air feels electric, filled with something that you can't quite put your finger on, right? So I want you to hold that as we go through today's sermon, because this is exactly what we're dealing with in today's story. As I told you, this is the last week of Epiphany, and consequently, we're hearing this story of the Transfiguration. And the Transfiguration is, in many ways, the mother of all Epiphany stories, right? I mean, Epiphany meaning the showing forth, and, and this story is showing forth Jesus as a prophet um, in line with all the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures, right? And that Jesus is God's chosen one, whom he has called beloved, right? The episode takes place at the almost exact center of the Gospel of Mark. So that should tell you that this is a very important story. And it also takes place on the highest geographical elevation uh, that is likely Mount Hermon the highest peak in Syro-Palestine. 
So it's not only uh, where it's located in the scripture, but where the story is located on this mountaintop. And Jesus has ascended. And in fact, the whole verses up to this point is about Jesus ascending. And he winds up here in the middle of the gospel of Jesus ascending to this mountaintop. But then what happens? He begins the journey to Jerusalem and descends. And so then we get the story back when he ascends to Calvary. So everything in this section that we will hear during Lent has to do with the action between these two mountaintops. The Transfiguration stands at this turning point. And at the verses just before this passage in chapter 8, Jesus has issued his most disturbing teaching that he must suffer and die and rise again and that anyone who wishes to follow him must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow him. And the disciples are understandably bewildered by these ideas and Peter even argues with Jesus about that this is just not going to happen. He's not going to let it happen. He refuses to believe that's going to happen and Jesus takes him to task about that. The transfiguration's brilliant light then acts as a kind of reassurance, right, for the disciples. And that includes you and me. It's an assurance that God's light still shines even as we go down into the shadows of the coming verses of Mark's gospel. It's as if Mark is saying, okay, we're now getting ready to go to Golgotha. And that means descending into the valley of the shadow of death. But you keep this story on your mind as we go. You remember the brilliance that takes place in this story. Carry it like a lantern and let it show you the way. This passage um, features Elijah, who in Mark appears on the mountaintop with Jesus, but it also provides a portrait of ancient Israel's prevailing model of prophetic succession. You know, Elijah hands his succession to Elisha. And so now Elijah is handing a successive move to Jesus. And in Mark's day, uh, many people considered Elijah to be an end-time figure, uh, eschatological, 25-cent theological word for end time, an end time figure. <laughs> and that his return would signal the end of the age. Oh, I thought, man, something was going on. I was getting it. Um, and, and so the story, the story begins, oddly, it says six days later. So why do you think Mark says that? Why six days later? Well, Six days later is an allusion to Moses. Moses spent six days on a mountaintop. And Moses also appears with Jesus there on that mountaintop. Uh, Moses spends uh, six days on the top of Mount Sinai before God calls out to him. And the shining garments also mimic Moses. Remember, Moses comes down and his face is shining. It's so bright that people can't even look at him. His clothes are shining. And that is exactly what is happening with Jesus here. So what's going on up there, do you think? What are they talking about? And why Elijah and Moses? Well, Elijah was considered the chief prophet. And Moses was considered the giver of the law. The two key things of Hebrew faith, right? 
Well, we can't even explain it. There ain't anybody, no, no theologian, no biblical scholar. I, you know, there's all kind of explanations. Some people say it's a vision of the heavenly realm that is to come. Time and space collapse, and the world somehow becomes incandescent. The disciples are understandingly overwhelmed and afraid. The scripture says they are terrified. I think I would be mm-hmm. terrified because they're seeing ghosts and a cloud surrounds them and they're hearing a voice. Peter, never at a loss for words, says, let us build you three, sh- three shrines right here. Going to build you some shrines. And maybe Peter's thinking about the Greek custom of building a shrine, shrine at the sign of a god's appearance or the Jewish tradition of building an Ebenezer, a stack of rocks, Ebenezer being a, a, a name that means um, it's, it's holy stone. Or simply he's terrified and he's trying to grasp at something to say. Then from the cloud, God's voice reprises the message at Jesus' baptism, right? You are my child, my chosen one. It seems that Jesus was the only one that heard that. But the language is different in this passage. It says, this is my chosen one. Listen to him. So God is speaking directly to these three disciples who have gone up onto the mountain with Jesus. And in keeping with the messianic secret that we've already talked about, Jesus orders the three disciples to keep his identity a secret until after he's risen from the dead. And the Apostle Paul speaks of that in the passage we heard for our first lesson. You see, Paul's understanding speaks of the gospel being hidden. And in truth, Jesus is asking his identity to be remain hidden, right? Until such time as he is glorified. Well, the story ends as abruptly as it began. The two former prophets vanish, and the disciples find themselves alone with Jesus. But the important thing to remember is that Jesus doesn't eclipse Elijah and Moses. He succeeds them. They are still equally important in our understanding of our faith. So what the heck do you think this means for us today? Like Peter, uh, we often will not even notice our holy encounters. Or if we do, we will misinterpret them. On the mountain, Peter saw something amazing, but didn't get it. And he jumped too quickly speaking, let's, let's build some shrines. Let's build something tangible, you know, because this isn't tangible. And he saw the vision, but he lacked the, under, the experience or insight to really understand. And that's why a lot of scholars think Jesus says, you don't need to talk to anybody about this because you don't fully understand it. And Peter was afraid. And here's what Diana Butler Bass says about that. Peter was terrified. And what she says is no one sees clearly when they're scared. And, you know, we got a lot of people in the whole world today that are scared to death for a lot of things and are being made to be scared to death by false statements and false stories. 
And like Peter, some of us may speak up too quickly or from fear, especially the extroverts in our midst, of which I am one. And we use wrong words. We gossip, we exaggerate, we lie, we sometimes threaten, and sadly, sometimes insult and demean and bully. And there's a lot of pitfalls of personal speech. And that personal speech then extends to communities that have problems with what they're saying. A powerful group might silence its critics, taking away the rights of others. And so that's all the more reason why we need to speak the truth as we understand it and address injustice in our world. Moreover, we are inclined to want to do this. You know how this is. Bonga, bonga, bonga. We want to jump from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. Don't mess with that stuff. Not in the valleys. I'm not going there. And so we don't actually encounter the fullness of God because we want to stay on the mountaintop. But that's not what Jesus teaches or lives. When I was uh, pastoring Friends Congregational Church in College Station, I had a, a spiritual director who was an Episcopal priest. And I got invited to speak at an interfaith gathering. And so we were hosting that. There would be a dinner afterwards. But they had all these speakers from all these different faith traditions. And I was one of them. And while I fully supported uh, conver the conversations, the interfaith conversations we were having, I was really struggling as I sat there waiting to speak about how, how do I explain or try to talk about my Christian faith honestly and not offend people of other faiths. You know, a lot of Christians, when they talk, they act like they're the only ones in the room, you know? And I thought, how, how can I do this? And I was just, I was really struggling. I, I don't think I had quite developed um, my theological perspectives or especially how it related to people of other faith. At that time, I was new to my ministry, but I was really struggling. I had knots in my stomach as I was getting ready to get up to speak. And as I sat in the sanctuary waiting my turn to speak, I looked up and the processional cross that was on a stand on the chancel was right in front of me. And my struggle just continued. And I thought, oh, I cannot deny the cross and the resurrection and all that means. And as I sat there and I looked at that cross, it started to glow. And not just glow. No, bright red glow. And it was so distinct and so breathtaking that I started looking around to see, who's, who, is it plugged in somewhere? Is it, is somebody shining a light? Is it a reflection off of something? I start trying to find all the actual things that were happening in the room. And when I finally uh, got up to speak, um, and I couldn't find anything that I thought was making it glow. And then when it was my turn to speak, I spoke about my faith and how glad I was that we were together exploring each other's faith and varieties of, of faith. And the words of the Apostle Paul ring true to my experience there. We do not preach about ourselves, but we preach that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer and that we are God's servants because of Jesus. It is God who said, let the light shine in the darkness. God is the one who made the light shine in our hearts by letting us know God's glory that we see 
in Christ's face. And as I think about it, I realize that if, peop- if we people uh, look carefully, we will see the face of Jesus Christ in everybody we meet. But we have to look. And we have to pray that that can happen. A few days later, I met with my spiritual director. And I related my experience. And I was very skeptical that it had anything to do mystically with God being present in the sanctuary. And I was convinced there had to be some actual physical remembrance, something happening that I could understand. And my, uh, she, she said to me, Joe, why are you skeptical? Why not just accept it as something you can't explain? A gift from God to you. And let it be a mystery that you ponder the rest of your life. I want you to know I never told that story to anyone other than my spiritual director for years because I was afraid they would think I was crazy. And I've never told it publicly until today. Well, I might have told it in a sermon before, but who knows? (laughs) Who can remember that? So the truth is that God gives us opportunities to be transformed every single day. And it doesn't have to be on a mountaintop, and most of, most of all, mostly, it's in mundane things in our everyday lives that we take for granted. But God seeks to show up and transform us every single day. And God doesn't shout about it. It's hidden. God whispers it. God whispers it to us that we are beloved, a gift and a mystery that we will never fully understand. Maybe until we enter into God's realm at our deaths. And when we find ourselves asking, what's going on? We probably ought to open our eyes and look around. If something is happening and we are asking ourselves, what's happening here? What's going on? May we have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and hearts to recognize this transformative power of love and grace that God is showing us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.